0: This is The Memo, by Howard Marks. Today, we're featuring another episode of The Rewind, in which Howard looks back on some of his memos over the years, discusses their origins, and considers their relevance to today's financial environment. In this episode, Howard reflects on the memo On the Couch, which was originally published on January 14th, 2016. Next week, we'll hear Howard's thoughts on What Does the Market Know?, a related memo which was published five days later. Here's Howard.
1: 2015 was a difficult period. It was a down year in most markets. It was the first down year since the global financial crisis. So of course, everybody was nervous. Everybody was concerned about a replay of the global financial crisis or something like it, or at minimum, a recession. So when 2016 began, the market got off to its worst start, I think in history, with a substantial decline. And sometimes the reasons produce the result in the markets, and sometimes the result happens and then people look for reasons, if you know what I mean. I think that was the case at the beginning of 2016, and that made it very interesting for examination. And that's what I set out to do. I really can't uh, point to a seminal event or date at which I began to appreciate the importance of psychology, but I think it was well. It was certainly there as long as I have been writing the memos. The first memo, of course, was written in 1990. The second one in 91. And it talked about the swing of the pendulum of psychology from greed to fear and confidence to lack of confidence and so forth. But I believe that my sensitivity to psychology began to accrue gradually over time. One of the first adages that an elder shared with me at a lunch group we used to have in New York called the Third Thursday Group, a bunch of investment people would gather on the third Thursday of every month for lunch. And one of them told me, you know, there are three stages to a bull market. The first stage, when only a few incredibly insightful people understand that things could get better. The second stage, when most people accept that improvement is actually taking place. And the third stage, when everybody believes that things will only get better forever. This has nothing to do with fundamentals. This is about psychology. When I heard things like this in my early days it's like a light went on. You know, I immediately understood the import and accepted the wisdom of that saying and many others. And the truth is that psychology does fluctuate inordinately in the markets and is responsible for many of the ups and downs. I think the reason the fluctuations are so extreme is that there's money at stake. When things are going well, people are manic about participating. And when things are going poorly, they get depressed, and they want to avoid losses. So I think that the presence of money in the equation produces a hypersensitivity to events. As expressed in the memo, what it said is basically that people go along, let's say they're in a good mood. Things have been good, developments have been positive, markets have been rising, and they go along in a good mood, and their good mood permits them to ignore negatives as they arise, and interpret things positively. And this rules until the negatives, for example, build up so that they're so great that they can't be ignored anymore. And then, as I said in the memo, they go from thinking that the outlook is flawless, which it never was, to thinking that it's hopeless, which it rarely is. But this is the swing of psychology that people engage in. There's a great saying, I can't remember from whom, that things take longer to happen than you thought they would, but then they happen faster than you thought they could. I think that this is the same idea, that whereas the negatives, for example, might accrue gradually and steadily, and you would think that the market and investors would react gradually and steadily, Rather, they ignore it and then they capitulate to it. So, yes, it goes from flawless to hopeless. And by the way, it happens in the opposite direction, too, although usually slower. My partner, Sheldon Stone, likes to point out that the air goes out of the balloon much faster than it goes in. And if anybody's ever had a balloon pop on them, they know what I'm talking about. So, yeah, I just think that when I went to graduate school, at University of Chicago, I was privileged to be among the first classes to be taught the Chicago approach, which included the efficient market hypothesis. The efficient market hypothesis says that one of the conditions for the markets to be efficient is that people are rational and objective. Obviously, I don't know if they ever are, but it's certainly true that you can't say they always are. And when they become irrational, that's when you get irrational swings in psychology. And we all see this. A lot of the memo on the couch was about the irrationality of investors' reactions to what go on in, in the world. And I spent a lot of time on that. And I think it's true. A great example was it said that the market's down because oil prices are falling. And when you say that, a lot of people, oh, yeah, that, right, fine, that makes sense. Yeah. Why? What is it? about falling oil prices, that means the market could go down. Bad for oil companies, good for car makers, good for consumers who have to spend less money on gas, good for oil-consuming countries, importers, bad for oil exporters. So certainly the implications are mixed, clearly mixed, and falling oil prices or rising oil prices doesn't necessarily mean good or bad, and yet people react that way, often based on their mood and based on the other unrelated events which have preceded the change in oil prices. First of all, when prices change, people tend to think they're going to go in that direction forever, whereas the truth is that most of these developments are self-limiting and that often reversion to the mean is the more reasonable expectation. One of the things I say is a lot of the important things in investing are counterintuitive and the things that are obvious are usually wrong. So you can talk about events serially. A happens and then B happens and then C happens and then D happens. But I think it's much more useful to think of causality. So A causes B, which causes C, which causes D. You might even say it's a semantic distinction, but you're much better off thinking about the causal relationship between events than you are as thinking, well, that's the standard pattern. George Soros says of the markets, he talks about something that he calls reflexivity, which is the ability of the people in the market and their actions to influence the market and change the market. Look at oil prices. One of the things that we say which has a lot of wisdom, is that the cure for low oil prices is low oil prices. And low oil prices, generally speaking, occur, leave aside for a moment, which is difficult, the effects of the OPEC cartel and its price fixing. But when oil prices fall, it's usually because of an imbalance of supply over demand. If the price falls, then the producers Number one, stop producing. They shut in their production. They don't want to sell at low prices. And they stop exploring because exploration and drilling is not justified by the low prices. So the supply decreases, the glut. Then look at the demand side. Drivers drive more because it's cheaper. And if they were thinking about getting, let's say, uh, solar heat, they say, no, I'll stick with the old gas boiler. And if they were thinking about getting an electric car... They say, no, no, now we can stay with the gas-powered car. And so the demand rises. You had a falling price because of the excess of supply over demand, but now you have an excess of demand over supply. Price goes back up. And this does not require anybody from the outside controlling oil prices. The government doesn't have to come in and do whatever governments do to try to get the oil price up. These things happen naturally. That's the way markets work. We're constantly seeing these things. And I think we always will. Thinking about causality allows us to understand why the standard pattern obtains. What we can do is, number one, we can't take statements at face value, whatever it is. The media in particular, and also the brokerage firms, although they don't use that term anymore, they now call them investment banks, they want to give people explanations The media, of course, wants to show its relevance, and the brokerage firms want to make people feel that they're operating in an environment which is understandable, comprehensible. So they give explanations. I find myself kind of laughing at those explanations because, as I said, thinking about macro, I say to myself, they say, well, the market went down yesterday because oil prices were soft. Where do they go to find out why the market went down? I've never found that font of information. They say it with such assurance. The market went down because, or the market went up because. Now, maybe those things happened that day and the market went up or down, but the causality isn't necessarily there as these commentators present it. So that's number one. So, If the pronouncements about causality are often wrong, I think the most important thing is to apply some skepticism and not swallow what the pundits say, as I tried to do in that memo. What's wrong with falling oil prices? Is that really an explanation for a falling market? One of the concerns was that interest rates might rise. Okay, as of the beginning of 2016, it was reasonable. think that interest rates might rise, but why should that be influential on the market at that juncture at the beginning of 2016, whereas it had been foreshadowed by Bernanke three years earlier? If rising interest rates explained behavior on January 16th of 2016, and since everybody knew they were coming for three years. Why didn't that same development occur the day before or a week before or a month before or a year before? So these explanations don't hold up. And you have to say what's new, what's the new information and what is its importance. And then you have to look at events. I talk in there about Third Avenue, which had a fund meltdown. Melted down because it was a liquid fund that permitted withdrawals that had a Large component of its portfolio in very poor quality illiquid names. So when it got hit with a wave of redemptions, it had to sell off the things it could sell, which meant that its portfolio became more and more and more and more concentrated in low quality illiquid names. And that's a formula for a meltdown, obviously. And so that was listed as one of the reasons for the market's decline. Well, why should that cause the market to decline? Is that a general problem in the economy or in the markets, or uh, in this case, the high yield bond or leveraged loan world? No. This was an idiosyncratic development at one fund manager. We all know that if you take illiquid securities and you put them in a fund that offers liquidity, you have the potential for problems. But that's nothing new. And the fact that it happened to Third Avenue did not make it any more likely that it would happen to any other of the many funds out there. So what do you have to do? You have to keep your emotions in check. You have to be skeptical with regard to these explanations that people are so facile in providing. And you have to figure out whether events are idiosyncratic or generalizable. And you have to say, well, if this is something we've been anticipating for years, why did it just have An impact for the first time yesterday. So it's all about questioning your sources. In the memo, I referenced one that I had written a few months earlier called It's Not Easy. And the point is that it's not easy to explain why the market went down yesterday. And the fact that the talking heads do it so easily should not make people think that they're right or that it's an easy task. And since the signals that the markets send out are so uncertain, I think that we can't take them at face value
0: as having import. And now, here's On the Couch by Howard Marks. I woke up early on Saturday, December 12th, the morning after a day of significant declines in stocks, credit, and crude oil. With enough thoughts going through my mind to keep me from going back to sleep, Thus, I moved to my desk to start a memo that would pull them together. I knew it might be a long time between inception and eventual issuance, since every time I dealt with one thought, two more popped into my head. In the end, it took a month to get it done. Professor Richard Thaler of the University of Chicago is a leading expert on behavioral economics and decision-making. In fact, he's such a significant figure in the field that he was given a cameo role in the movie The Big Short. He opens his new book, Misbehaving, with Vilfredo Pareto's assertion that the foundation of political economy, and in general, of every social science, is evidently psychology. I'd apply that equally to the not-so-scientific field of investing. It has been one of my constant refrains, dating back all the way to Random Thoughts on the Identification of Investment Opportunities, January 1994, That in order to be successful, an investor has to understand not just finance, accounting, and economics, but also psychology. A thorough understanding of how investors' minds work is essential if one is to figure out where a market is in its cycle, why, and what to do about it. For me, the market's recent behavior, certainly on December 11th, but also at other points in 2015, reinforces that observation. This memo is my attempt to send the markets to the psychiatrist's couch and an exploration of what might be learned there. 2012-2014, to An Uncertain World In September 2012, I wrote a memo called On Uncertain Ground. To begin it, I observed that the world seems more uncertain today than at any other time in my life. I went on to list the things that worried me. Few of them are less troubling today. Certainly, the period of the post-crisis recovery hasn't been carefree. Here are the things that concerned me in 2012, as viewed from that perspective. Macro growth. It seems to be broadly accepted that overall economic growth will be slower in the years ahead than in the latter part of the 20th century. Do lower birth rates and slowing gains in productivity doom us to reduced macro gains? What does this mean for everything else? In particular, if growth remains slow, will it lead to slowing inflation or even deflation? Trends in the developed world Will the developed nations be able to compete in a globalized economy? How will incomes hold up as developing nations produce goods cheaper and as the quality of those goods improves? As we increasingly become knowledge-based economies, Will we need as many less educated workers as in the past? If not, what will be the ramifications for unemployment, income inequality, and society as a whole? Consumer Behavior Will consumers regain the confidence required to return to their expansive spending behavior? Will they employ credit, as in the past, to perpetuate growth in consumption? Europe Will Europe move forward in terms of cohesion? Coordination and productivity? What happens if it doesn't? Will the ECB be able to engineer an economic recovery? Will the departure from the European Union of Greece, or new Greece's, return as a worry in the future? And now, will the coming referendum mandate Great Britain's departure? Will there be a new referendum in Scotland with regard to remaining in the UK? Will Catalonia vote to leave Spain And what will that mean for its membership in the EU? Leadership. For years, I gave speeches using PowerPoint slides listing sources of uncertainty. But where it was supposed to say dearth of leadership, someone had mistakenly typed death of leadership, and nobody quibbled. Throughout the world, few countries, if any, have leaders on par with history's best. Certainly that's true in the U.S. You may think it's a good thing or you may not but it's clear that Washington is too gridlocked to accomplish much as i wrote in on uncertain ground us politicians seem to value things like ideological purity that is towing the party line and being reelected above real attempts at problem solving partisanship and open warfare has surely reached a new zenith entitlements Social Security is a locomotive rumbling down the track to ruin. The cost of health care programs is growing rapidly, as drugs become more expensive and Americans live longer. Defined benefit pensions have been promised to public employees, but not fully funded. How will federal, state, and city governments meet their obligations? Not only does no one know, but also few people in government, certainly not in Washington, seem to care. China China As the world's second-largest economy, China plays a very important role in determining global growth. Its GDP advanced at double-digit rates over the last 20-plus years, without recessions, on the basis of A, millions of people moving from farms to cities, and to more productive roles in manufacturing, B, the low-cost exports they produced, and C, readily available capital, and the heavy fixed-asset investment it permitted. Henceforth, China will gain less from the above and will have to transition to domestic consumption of goods and services, as well as a slower-growing economy, perhaps with ups and downs like the rest of the world. Will this result in a near-term hard landing? And what will be the impact on nations that sell commodities and finished goods to China? Geopolitical Hotspots From the fall of the Soviet Union at the end of 1991 until the 9-11 attacks in 2001, investors' positive feelings were abetted by the presence of peace in the world. But in recent years, we have faced challenges involving Iran, Israel, and the rest of the Middle East, Russia and Ukraine, China and North Korea, and terrorist threats in many places. How will markets react to the inevitable flare-ups? The worries listed above confronted investors throughout the period 2012 through 2014. And in the last few months of that period, we saw a halving of the price of oil, additional slowing in China, worsening news from the Middle East, and continuing uncertainty regarding the Fed's likely action on interest rates. Given markets' abhorrence of uncertainty, we normally would expect such issues to result in low asset prices and negative returns. But in 2012-14, despite the many negatives, we saw a cumulative return of 74% on the S&P 500, as well as strong appreciation on the part of real estate and companies that had been the subject of buyouts. Further reflecting investor confidence, the yield spread versus treasuries for the average U.S. high-yield bond narrowed from 706 basis points at the end of 2011 to 522 bips at the end of 2014, at which point their prospective yield to worst was down to 6.67%. Thus, as 2014 moved to a close, we saw the litany of meaningful macro risks described above. Investors engaging in pro-risk behavior in pursuit of adequate returns in a low-return world, as a consequence, full asset prices, and thus, little likelihood of achieving returns high enough to compensate for the risks. To sum up, psychology, and thus prices, were high given the fundamentals. Our world was marked by low prospective returns and plentiful problems, a troubling combination. Here's what I wrote in Risk Revisited in September 2014. While investor behavior hasn't sunk to the depths seen just before the crisis, and in my opinion that contributed greatly to it, in many ways it has entered the zone of imprudence. It's the job of investors to strike a proper balance between offense and defense, and between worrying about losing money and worrying about missing opportunity, Today, I feel it's important to pay more attention to loss prevention than to the pursuit of gain. For the last three years, Oaktree's mantra has been, move forward, but with caution. At this time, in reiterating that mantra, I would increase the emphasis on those last three words, but with caution. Although I have no idea what could make the day of reckoning come sooner rather than later, I don't think it's too early to take today's carefree market conditions into consideration. What I do know is that those conditions are creating a degree of risk for which there is no commensurate risk premium. The negatives build. Given the many concerns, performance in the first half of 2015 was sluggish at best. Most markets eked out positive returns, but gains came grudgingly and few investors had a good time. Then, during the summer, the accumulation of worries accelerated and became too much to withstand. Growth remained flat or slowed in the U.S., Europe, and Japan. China's economy continued to slow. The Fed continued to dither regarding interest rates. A potential increase caused worry, but so did the appearance that the Fed considered growth too weak to allow an increase. The oil price decline resumed and other metals and commodities joined in, weakening the prices of related stocks and bonds. The geopolitical picture went from bad to worse. Syria presented a choice between a. enabling a despot to remain, and b. ousting him and turning over another country to instability and insurgency. Russia intervened, flexing its muscles and reminding us of its intransigence, ISIS and the flow of immigrants to Europe took on the appearance of insoluble problems. Paris and San Bernardino showed terrorism to be a serious ongoing threat. An agreement was reached to limit Iran's nuclear progress, but no two experts seemed to agree on whether it was a good or bad thing. Iraq, Afghanistan, Israel, and Palestine got no better. The South China Sea heated up from time to time. There was nothing positive to say about the U.S. political situation. Partisanship and gridlock remained the rule. The grinding two-year campaign took up increased airtime and mindshare without a positive consensus concerning most candidates. Finally, a number of issues internal to the markets, ranging from reduced liquidity to market reporting glitches to the meltdown of high-risk credit funds, shook investors' faith. Somehow, market participants are able to live with uncertainties like these and retain their equanimity, sometimes for long periods. Maybe it's conviction, maybe it's obliviousness, and maybe it's denial. And that's what prevailed in recent times. As Doug Cass put it in mid-2014, we've been experiencing a bull market in complacency. But eventually, something else happens. Perhaps the house of cards grows too high and investors' feeling of serenity is pierced. A point is reached beyond which equanimity can no longer be maintained. It was getting to that point that led to meaningful declines in U.S. credit markets in the latter half of 2015. The Tipping Point One of the most notable behavioral traits among investors is their tendency to overlook negatives or understate their significance for a while, and then eventually to capitulate and overreact to them on the downside. I attribute a lot of this to psychological failings, and the rest to the inability to appreciate the true significance of events. As negatives accumulate, whether they surface for the first time, or just are finally recognized as significant, eventually a time comes when they can no longer be ignored and instead they come to be treated as being of overwhelming importance. The latest tipping point was reached last August. Up to that point, investors had pretty much resisted the negatives, and the S&P 500 was up 3.3% in the first seven months of the year. The media might say investors had coped with the negatives, but of course they hadn't dealt with them. They'd ignored them. But then, in August... A series of negatives occurred in China, reports of still more economic slowing, a decline in A-share prices from June to August that reached 45%, an unexpected devaluation of the renminbi, whose value many people complained for years had been artificially depressed, and market support measures that some found ham-handed. For example, restrictions on actions such as short-selling and investigations of journalists writing negative articles about the stock market. Everyone knew for years that the Chinese economy had been overstimulated with cheap financing and that this had led to excessive investment in fixed assets. The effect was exceptional GDP growth, but also a large stock of unneeded buildings and infrastructure. Everyone also knew that a hard landing, A painful slowing in economic growth and perhaps a recession was among the possible outcomes. But it wasn't until August that investors outside China began to notice A shares collapse, consider the possibility that a slowdown in China could have negative ramifications for the rest of the world and import those worries to their own markets. Thus, between August 17th and 25th, the S&P 500 declined 11%. What was behind the extrapolation of China's woes to other markets, like ours? Here's how I explained it in It's Not Easy, published in September on the heels of the events in China. Especially during downdrafts, many investors impute intelligence to the market and look to it to tell them what's going on and what to do about it. This is one of the biggest mistakes you can make. As Ben Graham pointed out, The day-to-day market isn't a fundamental analyst. It's a barometer of investor sentiment. You just can't take it too seriously. Market participants have limited insight into what's really happening in terms of fundamentals, and any intelligence that could be behind their buys and sells is obscured by their emotional swings. It would be wrong to interpret the recent worldwide drop as meaning the market knows tough times lay ahead. Rather. China came out with some negative news and people panicked, especially Chinese investors who had bought stocks on margin and perhaps were experiencing their first serious market correction. Their selling prompted investors in the U.S. and elsewhere to sell also, believing that the market decline in China signaled serious implications for the Chinese economy and others. Whatever the reason, the bottom line for me... Is that whereas risk tolerance had ruled through July, risk aversion was reawakened in August? I picture an investor who's oblivious to risk in the earlier months, and then suddenly says, Oh, yeah, there are things to worry about. The tipping point finally arrives, a sudden wake up call to the existence and importance of risk. Half full or half empty? Almost 25 years ago in my second memo, First Quarter Performance, April 1991, I introduced the concept of the investment pendulum. Although the midpoint of its arc best describes the location of the pendulum, on average, it actually spends very little of its time there. Instead, it is almost always swinging toward or away from the extremes of its arc. But whenever the pendulum is near either extreme it is inevitable that it will move back toward the midpoint sooner or later. One of the most significant factors keeping investors from reaching appropriate conclusions is their tendency to assess the world with emotionalism rather than objectivity. Their failings take two primary forms, selective perception and skewed interpretation. In other words, sometimes they take note of only positive events and ignore the negative ones. And sometimes the opposite is true. And sometimes they view events in a positive light, and sometimes it's negative. But rarely are their perceptions and interpretations balanced and neutral. Ever since the August events in China, I've repeatedly found myself harking back to one of the oldest cartoons in my file, and still one of the very best. In this cartoon, a man is sitting with a drink in hand, on a couch watching a television commenter say the following, Everything that was good for the market yesterday is no good for it today. In 2015, we saw old problems get worse, new ones arise, and a general absence of anything to feel good about. The sense of hopelessness regarding problems like ISIS is something investors handle particularly poorly. In August, the events in China sparked a revival of risk aversion and fear, with effects that carried around the world for a couple of weeks. And with the door opened to fearful interpretation, Pollyanna tolerance gave way to widespread negativism. The bottom line is that investor psychology rarely gives equal weight to both favorable and unfavorable developments, Likewise, investors' interpretation of events is usually biased by their emotional reaction to whatever is going on at the moment. Most developments have both helpful and harmful aspects, but investors generally obsess about one or the other rather than consider both, and that recalls another classic cartoon. In this cartoon, a man is again sitting in a chair watching a commentator on television. Commentator says, On Wall Street today, news of lower interest rates sent the stock market up, but then the expectation that these rates would be inflationary sent the market down, until the realization that lower rates might stimulate the sluggish economy pushed the market up, before it ultimately went down on fears that an overheated economy would lead to a reimposition of higher interest rates. It all seems so obvious. Investors rarely maintain objective, rational, neutral, and stable positions. First, they exhibit high levels of optimism, greed, risk tolerance, and credulousness, and their resulting behavior causes asset prices to rise, potential returns to fall, and risk to increase. But then, for some reason, perhaps the arrival of a tipping point, they switch to pessimism, fear, risk aversion and skepticism and this causes asset prices to fall prospective returns to rise and risk to decrease notably each group of phenomena tends to happen in unison and the swing from one to the other often goes far beyond what reason might call for that's one of the crazy things in the real world things generally fluctuate between pretty good and not so hot but in the world of investing Perception often swings from flawless to hopeless. The pendulum careens from one extreme to the other, spending almost no time at the happy medium, and rather little in the range of reasonableness. First there's denial, and then there's capitulation. The Sources of Error To explain why these bipolar episodes occur, I want to spend a little time on some of the factors behind investor psychology. For the most part, they're easily observed and dissected, and not mysterious. I discussed some of them in It's Not Easy. Emotion is one of the investor's greatest enemies. Fear makes it hard to remain optimistic about holdings whose prices are plummeting, just as envy makes it hard to refrain from buying the appreciating assets that everyone else is enjoying owning. Confidence is one of the key emotions and I attribute a lot of the market's recent volatility to a swing from too much of it a short while ago to too little more recently. The swing may result from disillusionment. It's particularly painful when investors recognize that they know far less than they had thought about how the world works. It's important to remain moderate as to confidence, but instead, it's usually the case that confidence, like other emotions swings radically. While China was the proximate cause of the recent volatility, other things often contribute, and last month was no exception. The word that always comes to mind for me is confluence. Investors can usually keep their heads in the face of one negative, but when they face more than one simultaneously, they often lose their cool. One additional negative last month was the glitch in Bank of New York Mellon's SunGuard software and the bank's consequent inability to price 1,200 mutual funds and ETFs that it administers. It was another dose of disillusionment. No one enjoys learning that the market mechanisms they need to work can't be depended on. Another area of error, be it the result of flawed perception or inadequate insight and analysis, can be seen in investors' repeated failure to understand the potential for ramifications and second-order consequences. One instance was the general lack of concern about contagion from subprime mortgage-backed securities that prevailed between early 2007, when mortgages began to default in large numbers, and the tumultuous events of mid to late 2008. Most people overlooked the potential for contagion, and thus, for example, As of May 2008, the S&P 500 was essentially unchanged from the first quarter of 2007. Yet subprime mortgage defaults contributed significantly to the subsequent bank collapses and bailouts, the bankruptcy filing of Lehman Brothers, and the late 2008 emergence of fear of a financial system meltdown. As a consequence, between May 2008 and March 2009, the S&P lost 52% the events that produced such extreme distress in late 2008 and early 2009 were unforeseen and unimagined just a few months before, even though the clues had been there for a year. There are many more ways in which non-objective, non-rational quirks commonly affect behavior. As Carol Tavris points out in her May 15, 2015 Wall Street Journal review of Professor Thaler's book, As a social psychologist, I have long been amused by economists and their curiously delusional notion of the rational man. Rational? Where do these folks live? Even 50 years ago, experimental studies were demonstrating that people stay with clearly wrong decisions rather than change them, throw good money after bad, justify failed predictions rather than admit they were wrong, and resist, distort, or actively reject information that disputes their beliefs. The difficulty of understanding events, their significance, and their potential ramifications comes in good part from the kinks in investors' psyches, and it contributes to, and feeds back to exacerbate, investors' responses. Thus, investors tend to emphasize just the positives or the negatives much more often than they take a balanced, objective approach, and they tend to become optimistic and eager to buy when good news positively interpreted, has forced prices up, and vice versa. All of this is obvious, especially in retrospect, and thus equally obviously, understanding and dealing with it presents a potential way to improve results. Notions of market efficiency, the idea that most assets are priced right, are based on belief in investor rationality and objectivity, but certainly those traits are little seen in real life. Inefficiencies, in everyday language, mispricings, stem from biases against one asset or in favor of another. Legal, cultural, informational, and especially behavioral and emotional. The first three of these exist much less nowadays than they did 30 or 40 years ago. But the latter two still rear their head from time to time. And I'm sure they always will. Case in point. Oil. Oil. On December 12th, as I began to write this memo, the Financial Times provided several examples of the negative thinking being applied. Here are some excerpts from an article about the recent market action. Oil prices fell sharply to a seven-year low, rattling stock markets at the end of a choppy week. The price of Brent crude, the global energy benchmark, was down 5.6% to $37.49 after OPEC, at its meeting a week ago, failed to agree to output cuts, leaving prices at the mercy of a global glut. Lower oil prices are here to stay. The CBOE oil VIX is holding above the 54 level, as investors pay up to protect themselves against or speculate upon further sharp moves in crude. That all sounds very serious. But is it? Does it make any sense? What's the real significance of declining oil prices? The bottom line for me is that if you aren't an oil company or a net oil-producing country, low oil prices aren't necessarily a bad thing. For net oil importers like the U.S., Europe, Japan, and China, the drop we've seen in the price of oil is analogous to a multi-hundred-billion-dollar tax cut adding to consumers' disposable income. It can also increase an importer nation's cost competitiveness. The U.S. is both a producer of oil and an importer. That means the macro economy will enjoy the benefit of cost reduction and income enhancement, but domestic oil companies and those who provide them with products and services will gain less from production than had been expected, and some state and local governments will be hard hit. And I must add that, thus far, the indicators fail to suggest a salutary impact on the broad economy. Eighteen months ago, I thought the ability to produce oil through fracking at a cost of $40 to $60 per barrel would give the U.S. a cost advantage in manufacturing. That's no longer likely, at least for now. But the one thing that's beyond doubt is that the impact of the fall in the price of oil is far from all bad. In fact, I'd say that it's positive on balance for the U.S. and an unmitigated boon for the U.K., Europe, and East Asia. So why did the FT attribute market weakness to it? First, the media have taken on the unpleasant task of telling us why the markets went up or down each day, and the falling oil price is an easy answer. Until you give it any real thought. Second, though, as the FT went on to explain some worry might be appropriate regarding what it connotes. The fall in commodity prices is causing market anxiety because investors are worried that it signals a slowdown in global demand and that any economic benefit from cheaper costs for consumers and businesses is being counteracted by the cutting of investments and jobs by the resources sector. In other words, they're inferring that the price of oil declined because demand is off and that this signals economic weakness. But economic growth is what it is. We don't need the oil price to tell us it's weak, and the price of oil is off another third in the last few months, even though world GDP is still growing. The important thing isn't what the oil price decline tells us about today. It's what it says about tomorrow. And to me, everything else being equal, I think low energy prices today will contribute to better economic growth tomorrow. Low prices today probably also imply higher prices eventually, through their impact on supply and demand. It's just that everybody's interpreting everything negatively these days. Case in point, interest rates. The FT also pointed out that investors were reacting to the likelihood the Fed would raise interest rates, even though that should have been a foregone conclusion. Next week, the Federal Reserve will raise interest rates. That at least now appears likely. Anything else would be the biggest shock of a year in which markets and monetary authorities have had serious misgivings. Let us assume for now that it happens. This will be the longest-awaited and most-previewed tightening of monetary policy in history. There's something wrong if an event that has been widely anticipated for years and considered a near certainty for months can be thought capable of significantly impacting the market when it becomes a fact. People's expectations should be incorporated into the prices they assign to assets. So a negative reaction to the imminence of a widely heralded interest rate increase must imply that either A. Investors are too dense to have incorporated it into prices before this. B, the increase will be a bigger deal than people thought. Or C, the market is irrational. On December 15th, Dow Jones published the following quote. It's been more shoot-first, ask questions later, in the shares of large asset managers, said Kenneth Hill, an analyst at Barclays PLC. The concern is largely that as rates move higher... Investors think returns will move lower, and there will be some rotation out of fixed income. People are anxious to see how that plays out, he added. When Mr. Hill said that, more than two and a half years had passed since May 2013, when Ben Bernanke foreshadowed a tapering of bond purchases and the possibility of higher interest rates. How can investors not have had enough time to adjust to the possibility of higher rates and incorporated into asset prices. Indeed, the increase that was just days away should have been mostly a non event, and the idea that it was a significant contributor to the declines on December 11th makes no apparent sense. Over the years since Bernanke's statement in 2013, the question I've been asked more often than any other has been What month will the Fed begin to raise interest rates? My response has been consistent. I have no idea. And why do you care? If someone tells me he'll do one thing, if he thinks the Fed's going to raise rates in March, and something different, if it's going to happen in January, what he's demonstrated is that he doesn't understand how asset prices incorporate expectations. The difference in timing should have little effect on the choice of a course of action. What matters is how far rates will go and how fast. I don't expect much of either from this dovish and cautious Fed, unless the economy surprises on the upside. And that would be good news, wouldn't it? While on the subject of interest rates, I want to mention the thing about them that most annoys me these days. People who acted one way when rates were unchanged, even though everyone knew they wouldn't remain that way for long, are acting very differently now that there's been a quarter-point increase. This, they say, is because we're in a rising rate environment. But the issue of interest rates, like most others, shouldn't be viewed as binary, black or white, flat rates or rising. The essential questions are, how much will rates rise? And, when the series of increases is over, will rates be high enough to meaningfully alter behavior? That's what counts. Yesterday, the Wall Street Journal wrote as follows. Analysts and investors attribute the auto stock's recent greater-than-market declines to worries that rising U.S. interest rates could crimp auto finance and to fears that auto sales may have peaked. Does the interest rate outlook really mean significantly fewer cars will be sold? Especially given that low gas prices are making consumers richer and driving cheaper? I think people may have jumped to an unwarranted and negatively tinged conclusion. Case in 3rd Avenue. In terms of investor reaction, I find the announcement that 3rd Avenue's focused credit fund would liquidate to be the most interesting recent event. According to the FT... The liquidation of the biggest U.S. mutual fund since 2008 has intensified concern for the health of the U.S. corporate bond market. Some distinguished between a risk to the system, where issues at one fund trigger redemptions from others, and so-called idiosyncratic problems related to a single fund. Corporate bonds sold off again yesterday in the wake of the FCF liquidation announcement, and many investors rushed to buy default insurance contracts on junk debt. There isn't much to be in doubt about in the meltdown of the focused credit fund. Clearly, it reflected problems peculiar to that fund alone. In 2014, while a $3.5 billion fund, it had substantial holdings in particularly high-risk illiquid debt. Then, it encountered snowballing capital withdrawals at a time of reduced market liquidity. Under circumstances like these, portfolio managers generally raise cash by liquidating their most saleable holdings, causing the quality and liquidity of the remaining portfolio to decline. Continuing withdrawals took FCF's assets below $800 million in December 2015, and I hear it was down to 20 or fewer holdings, all of extremely low quality. Further redemptions would have forced the manager to sell those, realizing extremely low prices, eliminating any liquidity that may have been present, and leaving investors who hadn't redeemed holding the bag. The fault certainly lies with the fund's managers. Risky, illiquid investments may be appropriate for closed-end funds, whose capital is secure, but probably not for mutual funds or other vehicles subject to daily redemptions. It's debatable whether a fund should be expected to be able to handle both an 80% loss of AUM and a substantial decline in liquidity. But as I wrote in Liquidity, March 2015, no investor should shoulder more illiquidity than its realities permit, and in particular, no investment vehicle should promise more liquidity than is afforded by its underlying assets illiquid assets and the possibility of capital flight, there are few surer recipes for investment disaster. Investors lacking strong emotional and analytical foundations might have been scared into believing that FCF's problems connoted, or presaged, widespread weakness among high-yield bonds and other forms of risky debt. Those who were a bit less panicky Might have understood that high yield bonds in general were probably secure, but still feared that illiquidity would combine with cascading redemptions to cause a chain reaction of capital withdrawals from other funds, forced sales, and collapsing bond prices. But those with adequate emotional and analytical resources would have recognized that FCF's problems were more endogenous and idiosyncratic than a function of high-yield bonds broadly, and that adequate credit worthiness provides the debt holder's ultimate protection against chaos in the market. Recent Developments Behavioral economics, and its younger cousin, behavioral investing, aren't theoretical. In fact, they're the essence of practical. They're about how human foibles cause real-life behavior to deviate from what theory might dictate. In recent months, we've had occasion to watch how mood swings can alter the investment environment. I'll describe in a moment the events that have occurred in the market for distressed debt. In the U.S., the years 2010 to 2014 were characterized by gradual economic improvement, increasing corporate profits, a dramatic switch of the credit markets to accommodativeness, and, because of all this, some of the lowest default rates in history on low-grade debt. As a result, there was a paucity of distressed debt. Further, the little that was available was concentrated in just a few areas. European NPLs, real estate, shipping and power companies. Put these factors together, and oak tree found itself unable to assemble large or thoroughly diversified distressed debt portfolios. Noting this, we followed up our record $10.9 billion fund raised in 2007-2008 to and largely invested in the quarter following Lehman Brothers' bankruptcy filing with one of $5.5 billion in 2010 and then another of $2.7 billion in 2011. In other words, we halved our investable capital and then halved it again. There is no immediate connection other than for companies doing business there, between the slowdown in China or the price decline in the oil patch, on one hand, and the general creditworthiness and desirability of high-risk debt, on the other. And yet, over the last few months, pronounced changes have occurred in the market for distressed debt. After a period of very stable prices, even for iffy debt, some securities have gapped down in the last few months that is, fallen several points at a time, rather than correcting gradually. In particular, investors have become highly intolerant of bad corporate news. For the first time since 2008 to 2009, the debt of some companies outside of energy and mining has fallen from 90 to 60, and others from 50 to 20. There is a general sense among my colleagues that investors have gone from evaluating securities based on the attractiveness of their yield with company fundamentals viewed optimistically, to judging them on the basis of the likely recovery in a restructuring, with fundamentals viewed pessimistically. The capital markets have begun the swing from generous toward tight, as is their habit. Thus, whereas they used to find it easy to refinance debt in order to extend maturities or secure rescue financing, now it's hard for companies, especially those experiencing any degree of difficulty to obtain capital. On December 7th, Oak Tree held a dinner in New York for equity analysts who follow our publicly traded units. Bob O'Leary, a co-portfolio manager of our distressed debt funds, planned to be among the hosts. But he called me on December 3rd with a question I hadn't heard in a long time from my distressed debt colleagues. Would you mind if I don't come? There's too much going on for me to leave the office. The change in investor attitudes had created investment opportunities where they hadn't existed just a few months before, in some cases out of proportion to the change in fundamentals. Developments like these are indicative of rising pessimism, skepticism, and fear. They're largely what Oaktree hopes for since, everything else being equal, they make for vastly improved buying opportunities. But note that we may be just in the early stages of a downward spiral in corporate performance and credit market behavior. Thus, while this may be a time to buy, I'm far from suggesting it's the time. My Prescription To help investors deal with their potential for human error, this shrink would prescribe a number of elements that can help with the task. The first essential element in coping with markets, irrationality, is understanding. The importance of psychology and its influence on markets must be recognized and dealt with. The second key lies in controlling one's emotions. An investor who is as subject as the crowd to emotional error is unlikely to do a superior job of surviving the market's swings. Thus, it is absolutely essential to keep optimism and fear. In the appropriate balance. Emotional self-control isn't enough. It's also important to have control over one's circumstances. For professionals, that primarily means structuring one's environment so as to limit the impact on them of other people's emotional swings. Examples include inflows to and outflows from funds, fluctuations in market liquidity, and pressure for short-term performance. At Oaktree, we never fail to appreciate the benefit we enjoy from being able to reject hot money and limit our fund's redemption provisions. And finally, there's contrarianism, which can convert other investors' emotional swings from a menace into a tool. Going beyond just fending off emotional fluctuation, it's highly desirable to become more optimistic when others become more fearful, and vice versa. I'm lucky to have received many gifts of investment insight early in my career. Perhaps foremost among them is one I picked up in New York about 40 years ago at a lunch meeting of what we called the Third Thursday Group. It concerned the three stages of a bull market. The first, when only a few especially insightful people suspect improvement might occur. The second, when most people accept that improvement is actually taking place and, The third, when everyone concludes that things are sure to improve forever. Between the first stage and the last, nothing has to have changed in terms of fundamentals. The difference lies in the perspective investors are bringing to their decisions. But clearly, it's great to be a buyer in the first stage and essential not to be in the last. We know investors swing from rejecting all possibilities to drinking the Kool-Aid just as the three stages say. Thus, at Oaktree, we want to buy when they're pessimistic, not when they're eager participants. If I could know only one thing about an investment I'm contemplating, it might be how much optimism is embodied in the price. In the first stage of the bull market, no optimism is present, and that makes for great bargains. In the last stage, the level of optimism is terribly high, And thus, so are purchase prices relative to fundamentals. I want to buy when I can benefit from the herd's neuroses, not when they'll penalize me just as they do everyone else. As I mentioned previously, since the middle of 2011, by which time the quest for return had resulted in rather full prices for debt, over-generous capital markets, and pro-risk investor behavior, O'Tree's mantra has been, Move forward, but with caution. We've felt it was right to invest in our markets, but also that our investments had to reflect a healthy dose of prudence. Except for the occasional air pocket, investors didn't suffer significant negative consequences prior to the last year or so. Thus, as usual, we were early in turning cautious. But opportunities and returns in the credit sphere have been only so-so since mid-2011 and I don't think our caution caused us to miss much. Now, as discussed previously, investors' optimism has deflated a bit. Some negativity has come into the equation and prices have moved lower. Depending importantly on which market we're talking about and how it has fared in recent months, we consider it appropriate to move forward with a little less caution. While I have your attention, I want to devote a few paragraphs To the two questions I'm asked most often these days, what are the implications for the U.S. and the rest of the world of China's weakness, and are we moving toward a new crisis of the magnitude of what we saw in 2008? At a time when the environment is marked by so many potential problems, it's important to figure out which, if any, are likely to present real problems. Declining oil prices. The implications for non-oil producers seem mixed at worst. A terrorist event. Horrifying, but for any one person or location, I'd put it in the category of an improbable disaster. The political picture? We'll probably continue to muddle through, no matter who's elected. I would say that, of all the things on the list, the possibility of a hard landing in China is of the greatest significance when you combine magnitude potential ramifications, and the probability of it occurring. So it's important to look objectively at what it means for the U.S. First, let's remember that China doesn't play a pivotal role in the U.S. economy, other than as a provider of finished goods. It is estimated to account for only 1% of the combined profits of the S&P 500 companies. Exports account for about 13% of U.S. GDP. And in the first 11 months of 2015, less than 8% of our exported goods went to China, $106 billion of goods, versus an annual GDP approaching $18 trillion, again, well below 1%. Going on from there, I want to share Paul Krugman's analysis from the New York Times of January 8th. I generally don't agree with Krugman's politics, but I don't think they're relevant here. Yes, China is a big economy, accounting in particular for about a quarter of world manufacturing. So what happens there has implications for all of us. And China buys more than $2 trillion worth of goods and services from the rest of the world each year. But it's a big world, with a total gross domestic product excluding China of more than $60 trillion. Even a drastic fall in Chinese imports would be only a modest hit to world spending. What about financial linkages? One reason America's subprime crisis turned global in 2008 was that foreigners in general, and European banks in particular, turned out to be badly exposed to losses on U.S. securities. But China has capital controls. That is, it isn't very open to foreign investors, so there's very little direct spillover from plunging stocks or even domestic debt defaults. All of this says that while China itself is in big trouble, the consequences for the rest of us should be manageable. But I have to admit that I'm not as relaxed about this as the previously stated analysis says I should be. If you like, I lack the courage of my complacency. Why? Part of the answer is that business cycles across nations often seem to be more synchronized than they should be. For example, Europe and the United States export to each other only a small fraction of what they produce, yet they often have recessions and recoveries at the same time. Financial linkages may be part of the story, but one also suspects that there is psychological contagion. Good or bad news in one major economy affects animal spirits in others. So I worry that China may export its woes in ways back-of-the-envelope calculations, miss. I want to highlight Krugman's reference to psychological contagion. It's interesting in this regard that last week, the world's stock markets saw the following declines. S&P 500, down 6%. FTSE 100, down 5.3%. DAX, down 8.3%. And Nikkei, down 7%. I consider it highly unlikely that such uniform declines were the result of independent, objective analysis of the impact of events on each economy and company. Rather, I think they show the extent to which markets are linked by their investors' shared psychology. So, what about the likelihood of another 2008-style crash? The bottom line for me is that a rerun of the global financial crisis isn't in the cards. We haven't had a boom, either in the economy or in the stock market, so I don't think we're fated to have a bust. Because most businesses have been particularly loath to expand their facilities, I don't think they'll be slammed if revenues flatten or turn down. The leverage in the private sector has been reduced. This is particularly true of the banks, where leverage has gone from the region of 30-plus times equity Before the crisis, two very low double digits today. And, of course, banks are now barred from investing adventurously for their own account. Finally, the main villain in the crisis was subprime mortgage-backed securities. The raw material, the underlying mortgages, was unsound and often fraudulent. The structured mortgage vehicles were highly levered and absurdly highly rated. And the risky tranches ended up in banks' portfolios, causing them to require rescues. Importantly, this time around I see no analog to subprime mortgages and MBS in terms of their combination of fragility and magnitude. I don't mean to suggest there aren't a lot of things to worry about. Swollen central bank balance sheets, complete ignorance as to how they will be unwound and how interest rates will be moved higher, the seeming inability to generate economic growth and inflation, and the many other macro-negatives mentioned earlier. A hard landing and substantial devaluation in China, the world's second-largest economy, certainly could have far-reaching effects. It's important that investors, as well as economists, avoid using words like always, never, will, won't, has to, and can't. And I try to do just that. But it's my view that the GFC and its preconditions we're highly unusual, and I don't think we're heading for an encore. Remember, however, that I am not a seer, and Oak Tree and I never bet heavily on opinions regarding the future, mine or anyone else's. Before I close, I want to make it abundantly clear that when I call for caution in 2006 to 2007, or active buying in late 2008, or renewed caution in 2012, or a somewhat more aggressive stance here in early 2016, I do it with considerable uncertainty. My conclusions are the result of my reasoning, applied with the benefit of my experience, and collaboration with my oak tree colleagues, but I never consider them 100% likely to be correct, or even 80%. I think they're right, of course, but I always make my recommendations with trepidation. I read the same newspapers as everyone else. I see the same economic data. I'm buffeted by the same market movements. The same factors appeal to my emotions. Maybe I'm a little more confident in my reasoning, and certainly I have more experience than most, but the key is that, for whatever reason, I'm able to stand up to my emotions and follow my conclusions. None of them can be documented or proved. If they could be, most intelligent people would reach the same conclusions, with the same degree of confidence. I tell you this only to communicate my feeling that no one should fear he's not up to the task just because he's unsure of his conclusions. These aren't things about which certainty is attainable. January 14, 2016 Thank you for listening to The Memo by Howard Marks. To hear more episodes, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast expresses the views of the author as of the date indicated, and such views are subject to change without notice. Oak Tree has no duty or obligation to update the information contained herein. Further, Oak Tree makes no representation, and it should not be assumed that past investment performance is an indication of future results. Moreover, wherever there is a potential for profit, there is also the possibility of loss. This podcast is being made available for educational purposes only and should not be used for any other purpose. The information contained herein does not constitute and should not be construed as an offering of advisory services or an offer to sell or solicitation to buy any securities or related financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Certain information contained herein concerning economic trends and performances based on or derived from information provided by independent third-party sources. Oaktree Capital Management, LP, Oaktree, believes that the sources from which such information has been obtained are reliable. However, it cannot guarantee the accuracy of such information and has not independently verified the accuracy or completeness of such information or the assumptions on which such information is based. This podcast, including the information contained herein, may not be copied, reproduced, republished, or posted in whole or in part in any form without the prior written consent of Oaktree. Audiation